So um, I want to pick back up. You know, our series is Sustain. If you're new, newer here or new here, you may not be aware of that, but we've been sitting with this idea of how to keep faith moving and going when it gets tough in life, um, how to keep moving in a vibrant way with the Lord. And we've been using the Apostle Paul and what is known in the scriptures as his second missionary journey as a template for enhancing our understanding. And so I'm not going to go back and revisit the complete setup for we've covered in the last three weeks a, a number of things. We've talked a lot about the whole geography of what we're reading. I do want to put up a map. And again, this just is helpful for us because when we read what we're about to read, it's good to see what we're actually reading about. Now, again, I'm not going to go back into the, the entire geography, but you can see where the Aegean Sea is. That's Greece. You can see where Greece is, and of course where a majority of the action is taking place is what we would call modern-day Turkey, and there's, there's that whole region um, in Paul's day. We'll pick back up here with verse 6 in Acts 16, this remarkable, significant chapter. One of the key chapters in all the New Testament is Acts 16 because of what happens for the first time. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But if you have your Bible, your Bible app, you just want to follow along, it's in the handout as well. And it says, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. The Asia he's referring to is Asia Minor. Specifically, Paul had it in his mind when he left Antioch of Syria. He felt like God wanted them to go to Ephesus. You can see where Ephesus there is there on the map. He thought that was the place where it would be the most fertile opportunity for people to receive the message of Jesus. He knew that there was an, a significant synagogue and that there was a tremendous opportunity. Uh, the population itself seemed tailor-made for what he could bring to the table on behalf of the Lord. Remember, it was his goal to not only revisit the churches that they had planted, but also to take the message of Jesus to places where it had never gone. In their mind, they were only focused on that region of Asia, right there, Asia Minor. What we, again, what we call modern-day Turkey. It says, as we're, as we're reading here, it was in his mind. He wanted to go that direction. But look at verse 7. It says, they, they tried, but the Lord said no. And so, how, and we talked about how that might have been, how he may have felt that. Was it a word or was it an impression? No matter what, we, we're not given specific details on how he felt that God told him no. All we know here is that the Lord impressed upon him deeply that he was not to go in the direction that he had planned. So he makes up his mind then, okay, it must be that God wants us to go northward. You can read about it. It says that they tried to go into, verse 7, tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So they first try to go to Ephesus. The Lord impresses, no, don't go that way. Hmm, well, that was our plan. I thought that's where you wanted us to go, God. No. Okay, then God must want us to go towards the Black Sea and the people of that region. They start to head that way. No, the Spirit of Jesus forbids them. There's only really one other option, is to keep going straight ahead, and that's exactly what they do. They go all the way to, as you can see, this city on the, on the edge of the Aegean Sea called Troas, Troas near ancient city of Troy. That Troas is still there today. And they get to Troas, and Paul still doesn't understand. You know, Look at that, verse, um, verse 8. It says, they, passing by Mycenae, they came to... Troas, down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. So he doesn't understand why, why he's there. He doesn't understand why the doors have closed. He had his plan on be, to do something for Jesus, and it was made clear to him that he shouldn't do it. 
but he wasn't given a sense of what he was supposed to do. So we talked about how not knowing exactly where to go, he just started moving forward. And they ended up coming to the end of the road, if you will. They, they, they end up at the edge, a port city. And Paul's going, I don't know what God wants us to do here. I don't understand. I really don't know. And as he goes to bed that night, we're told that he has this vision, this dream. It says that a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. The man of Macedonia. So he has this dream, and in this dream, when it says man of Macedonia, he would have seen a man who was dressed in the clothing of the Greek Macedonians. You can see where Macedonia is across the Aegean. And in his dream, he sees this man saying, come and help us. And so he wakes up, and the next day, he says, I think I know what God wants. I had this dream of a man calling me. I think God wants us to take this message across the waters and land it into the Greek people and into the Greek land. And we need to go to Macedonia. So look what it says here. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And I was fascinated by the implications of Paul's experience. Few people, if ever, would have been more familiar with the Spirit's leading than the great apostle. And yet, I'm watching him try to figure out how to discern God's will. And it's a reminder of something, isn't it? It's a reminder that sustainment, I'll just put the principle up on the board for us, that sustainment is going to require continual adjustments in our life, flexibility, and humility. The road ahead is not always clear for us. Um, the way is not always easy to discern. Again, Paul thought he knew. He didn't. He gets to Troas. He ends up seeing a couple of things. He gets there. He's not clear. Just like sometimes in our life, we might think we know, but we're not really sure what God wants us to do. I was telling a group of, of um, men at the men's retreat that we, we just had, I said, you know, there are times in our lives where we, we, we don't know which way to go. We come to these fork in the road moments. And I said, or, or we're going into a future that's kind of unclear for us. And I said, you know, sometimes what I've found is the Lord won't necessarily show us the whole way. He just shows us the next step. And there are times in our lives where we're saying, God, show me the way. Show me the whole way. And then I'll obey you. And God's gonna, God says sometimes, no, I'm showing you the next step. This season of your life will be, the, will be the season of the next step, not the whole way, right? So keeping that in mind, and we're looking at this together, and I'm going, what happens when Paul gets to Troas? Well, one, he sees the, the vision of this man from Macedonia. That's one. But the other thing that happens is less, is less significant, but it's, it's just as real. His team actually grows. So not only does he get that vision, but he also has an addition to his team. Up to this point, his team consists of Timothy, who's a younger leader, and Silas, who's a ministry partner, is a group of three. But we know that something happens here, and it's less noticeable. But notice, if you look at verse 10 there, do you see this? It says, now, after he had seen the vision immediately, notice the word we. Now, we, if you contrast that with verse 8, which says, they came down to Troas. What we know, and uh, students of the scripture uh, have, have been able to ascertain with pretty accurate clarity here that this is the place where Dr. Luke, who becomes the writer of the book of Luke and the book of Acts, the recorder of the book of Acts, this is the place where he joins that team. It goes from they in verse 8 
to we in verse 10. And it continues that way all the way through. Luke has become part of this, this group who are trying to figure out what God is up to. And I look at that, and it's, again, it's worth noting, I, 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 one of the other things that stands out there is that even after Paul has this vision, and it's going to teach us something about sustainment, by the way, and this is a great principle um, we're about to look at. Uh, notice how it says that even after Paul shares the vision he has, it says that we sought to go to Macedonia, verse 10 there, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's subtle, but it's important. We concluded the Lord had called us. So Paul gets this vision, but it's not like he goes, I absolutely know. I, he, he had the impression that God was calling them to get on a ship and go across the Aegean and go to Macedonia. But it's clear here that he, even as a leader, brings this to the group and they conclude together. It's almost like the team is sitting with the vision and sitting th setting things together to clarify and solidify what they thought the Spirit was saying. And I find that wonderfully practical. And it will, it's the kind of thing that will keep us from making big mistakes in our lives. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've seen it uh, where someone says, well, I, you know, God told me to do this. And I'm going, I've seen a lot of damage done in the name of God told me to do this over the years. Right? No one's going to tell me I'm going to, I'm not saying there aren't times, I'm just going to put something up, I'll put this principle up there. There, when it comes to sustainment, it's really important that we bring others in to further, as they were doing, clarify God's leading. I mean, it, it falls under that, that um, principle, measure twice, cut once, right? It's very important. There is a humility about it, that before Paul even embarks on a course, even though he has this deep impression and this vision, um, he and I'm assuming he was shook and stirred by it, but he brings in Timothy, he brings in Luke, he brings in Silas, and they talk the matter over to clarify what he believes God is saying to them. Do you see the humility in that? Do you see the wisdom in that? To think it through, we may find ourselves on the verge of significant life choices. We come to them inevitably. And when we get there, we try to do what we, we think God wants us to do. What would be the best? I hope that's a priority to us. Otherwise, we're just on our own. But when we are trying to figure out, is this what God's doing? Is this door something God's opening up? It's really important to bring others into that conversation who love God and know us. Like, but you know why? They become travelers on our journey with us. The Bible says that in a multitude of counsel, there is safety. Many mistakes in life could have been averted by having quality counsel and prayer and humble discussion to clarify and discern. Like I said, I've seen a lot of people come into the church wounded because somebody in the name of God told me did something pretty reckless and unthinking. And I'm not even talking about like bad, bad stuff. I'm just talking about life decisions in the name of faith. Like, God's got this. And I'm not, there is a time to have faith, and there's a time to step out, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But there's also a place for wisdom and understanding and factoring in always our own capacity to get things wrong. We must always suspect our own righteousness. 
Never should we ever get so confident and so, so uh, like I said, the word, the word reckless comes to mind because I've watched a lot of collateral damage of people who've been injured um, and sometimes have taken years before they even walk through the doors of a church again because somebody in the name of, of, of God said, this is what we must do. Or, or a family member be, kind of got, got kind of out there and, did, and in, in the desire to honor God, but did something pretty reckless and wasn't exercising wisdom, bringing others into that conversation, being prayerful and humble. If Paul gets a vision from the Lord and, and still feels the need to together conclude, if this is what God is indeed saying, how much more does that mean for you and me? I think it means a lot. But here's the, but here's the corollary. Here's the flip of the coin on the backside. Once we discern that God is opening up a door, uh, then, and I'll put this up there, once we're clear and unified around a sense of God's purpose, we should act without delay and buy the ticket. It says immediately, immediately, once they've decided together, the Lord is in this, they immediately left. They bought the ticket. In fact, you know, I like to do this a lot. You know I do. Turn to some person to your right or your left and say, hey, Buy the ticket. Go for it. Just do it. Go for it. <laughs> Buy the ticket. <laughs> Buy it. What are we saying? When we, there is a time when we don't want to delay. God puts an impression into your heart. Now I am saying it. Maybe you have a yearning to give. Maybe you have a yearning to serve. Maybe you have a yearning to reorder something in our life. Or maybe there's an adjustment you sense coming, sometimes out of even a service, that you're sensing God's wanting me to address something in my life. God's wanting me to open something up. God's wanting me to take a step in a direction. And there is a time to just buy the ticket. Do it. Immediately, they bought the ticket. They got on, and they started sailing. That's like, once they clarified... And here's the thing. You'll read in the scripture, there's this interesting part of Jesus, the life of Jesus and ministry of Jesus. I don't even know how to fully process it completely in a, in a logical sense. But it says that there are certain times where Jesus would say that the spirit of the Lord was present to heal. And it almost was implying that not all time is the same. That there are certain moments where God's presence is available in certain ways that it's not in other, time, in other ways. There are healing moments that are accessible. There are times where God is moving in your life where there's a window to respond. There, it's like we've got to the point now where we understand pretty good idea and we need to act on it. We need to buy the ticket. There's an interesting, uh, the Quakers, um, they have this, this concept they talk about the, how a person has to respond to God when God's moving. And they talk about how a person, and the phrase they use is they say, a, a person will be restless and uneasy until they, and the phrase they use is, until they clear themselves of their burden. That phrase, clear themselves of their burden. What they mean by that, interestingly enough, in other words, there will be some areas where we will not have peace until we respond in our life to what God, God really is prompting us to respond to. Like, like, I am not going to have peace until I, I release that, until I respond to that burden, right? Until I, in a sense, clear myself of this burden. And I'm saying is there a there's a timing where God will almost work the miraculous because what we're about to see happen is phenomenal. It literally will change the world. 
They didn't know it at the time. Had no clue. <laughs> they didn't, couldn't see it. But what they were about to do, when that message hits the shores of Europe, it's the first time it hits the outer rim of Europe and is destined to turn the Roman Empire upside down and change the world as we know it. A group of four crossing the waters from Troas over to the rim of Greece, stopping along the way in Samothrace, and you'll see it up there in a moment. I'm going to put, in fact, if you, they can put that up, we'll see what, what I'm talking about. If you look, you can see where they go. From Troas, they decide, okay, God must want us to cross over to Macedonia. We'll head towards Philippi. But before we get to Philippi, they would have, see those three little islands there? The, the top of the triangle is called Samothrace, right? Now, that is where they stop. Look, uh, look what it says here in verse 11. It says in Acts 16, we boarded a boat at Troas, there it is, sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. That island is halfway between Asia Minor and Europe. So it's, it's, it's now separates uh, Turkey and Greece, right? And, they, and it says that they, they stopped halfway because the reason is they didn't want to take the chance of sailing at night. There were more hazards in night sailing than there were in sailing in the day. And so they decided to stop, as be prudent, at the midway point. And it says that the next day we landed in Neapolis, which implied, by the way, that the wind was with them. So the, the, the if you can see in our mind's eye, the, the beauty, the sparkling turquoise beauty of the Aegean Sea with the light breeze and the sun dancing. And they have a sense of adventure for God in their minds as they feel the breeze and await the moment that they cannot see but sense because God has given them a sign, a man in a dream from Macedonia calling us to come and help. And so now they're on their way. And it got me thinking because, because oh, by the way, that journey ends up taking them. One day they stop in Samothrace and the following day they land in Neapolis. The next time on the way back, that same journey is going to take them five days because the wind was against them. And, it, and it, as I sat there, I go, Lord, I thank you for the times in my life where the wind is with me. I don't want to take them for granted. And I, just, I said, hey, put that up for them. I said, let's not take for granted the seasons when the wind is at our back. We're always talking about, oh, you know, when things go wrong. And they do at times. They go, life. Oh, I mean, you're sailing along. It's going great. Things are smooth. Next thing you know, a storm hits out of nowhere. And sometimes when a storm hits us in our life, it can come like in, in just wave after wave after wave. And all of a sudden, we're going, what is going on? It could be relational. It could be health. It could be our job. It could, I think it's, just, it's amazing. It could be stuff that happens in our nation, things that can disturb us of our peace, right? And there's a lot of things there. But when we have those seasons, and that's why I was, I was reminded, I was saying, Lord, when I have the season when the wind is at my back, and, uh, you know, help me not to take those for granted. And that's true for the people. We always focus on either what's wrong. I don't say we always. We often focus on what's going wrong, or what, what's, what is not going well relationally. I don't know if we put the same energy in as being grateful. It's one of the beauty is, beauties of Thanksgiving, I think, that season it actually invites us to be a thankful, grateful people. And when the wind is at our back, 
and we're in a good season in life, pause to thank God. Uh, just enjoy, enjoy that. Be, be open to just being grateful to the Lord. Maybe once in a while we need to say thank you, Lord, for the people that you've given me in my life who mean so much. Not take us, we, just, we take things for granted until we start to lose them. All right? Okay, so verse 12, it says, for from there, okay, okay, watch, watch what happens. So they land. They land in Neapolis, the port city of Philippi. The first time the gospel ever lands in Europe, the world was about to be changed forever, although no one realized it at the time. Verse 12, from there, and Luke's writing this, we reached Philippi. Philippi, last time with the map, guys, Philippi would have been about 10 miles from Neapolis. You can see where Philippi is. Philippi was, as we're told in the scriptures, a major city of that district of Macedonia. In fact, it was designated as a Roman colony, which gave it special rights and privileges. Paul says, we stayed there for several days. Philippi was, and, and several days is interesting because it was um, the optimism that had gripped them, we may assume, started to wane because they had gone there believing that God sent them. We had this vision of this man from Macedonia. Where's the man from Macedonia? Where's the, what, where is this, this conversation we're supposed to have? Who's this person that's, oh, that was the vision. Surely God had a plan. They had felt confident about that, deeply impressed to cross the sea, buy the ticket, get there, come to land. But there was no man from Macedonia. And so they started, they maybe started asking the question, do we miss this again? Maybe Paul's thinking that way. They had found their way to the city. Again, they traveled 10 miles by foot into Philippi. Philippi was clearly a city um, that was, had its own kind of impressiveness. It was, the, oh, it was the end of the road. It was the terminus of a road that led from Rome called the Ignatian Way. It was the end spot of the road. And they were, thought, this is exactly where God wants us to be. But more than a few days had passed. And we're told, we're told here several days, many days, and nothing seemed to be happening. Here's the other problem they encountered that they didn't envision because they wouldn't have known it. Okay, Paul's strategy, whenever he would go into a city to take the message of Jesus, he was Jewish. He would, he would always go to people who were familiar with the scriptures as a starting point. So he would always look, and this is ironic given what we're, it's been in our news, he would all, the first thing he would look for is a synagogue. He would go to a synagogue where he, he, as a former Pharisee, was very comfortable. And he would then begin to talk about how Jesus was the Messiah, promised, maybe even share his own story, how he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and how God had radically altered his life when he was confronted by Jesus. I mean, he could have talked about those things very easily. He had three groups in mind when he came into a city. He would go to a synagogue, and he knew that in a synagogue, in a synagogue in a Gentile city like Philippi, or Ephesus, or places where there would have been a synagogue, he wasn't 100% sure, as we're going to see, that there, there was one until he got gets there. Um, but he looks for it because he wants, there's three people. There's, there's Jewish pe men and women, but the Jewish men who would have had familiarity with his, his understanding of the scripture. He could talk to them about Jesus. There was another group called, that were, we would call them proselytes. They were Gentile, non-Jewish people who had completely embraced the faith of Abraham and the teachings of the Old Testament. They had embraced the scriptures and the God of Israel as their own and had, listen, made a cultural jump to become Jewish themselves. That meant as a man, they were circumcised. 
They were no longer actually viewed in the synagogue as being Gentiles. They were viewed fully as Jewish. There was a third group Paul knew would be there. They were called God-fearers. They were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who had embraced the faith of the Jewish people and the God of Israel, but had not made the cultural leap to become Jewish. Paul, based on his experiences, started to understand that the people that he had most access to, seemed to be most receptive, were the Gentiles who had attached themselves to the synagogue but had not wanted to leave their culture behind. And the message of Jesus was, was a message that could translate very easily for them. It was, it was something that they could still hold to their culture at the same time fully embrace the idea of Jesus as Messiah. So Paul's got in his mind, the first place we're going to look for is a synagogue to talk about Jesus. The problem is they get to Philippi thinking, where's the synagogue? They can't find one. It doesn't exist. And the reason is this. In that day, it required 10 believing Jewish males. It was a patriarchal culture. It required 10 Jewish males to establish a synagogue. What that tells us is Philippi did not have that. So they have no idea what to do. They, get a, they hear a rumor. There is a gathering. It's actually got, has more women in it. There's some men there. Um, they don't have enough for a synagogue, but they, they gather by the river and they have a prayer gathering on Saturdays, the Sabbath. If you want to talk to somebody who might be open, go check it out. There's no synagogue, so look what, look what happens. Look what they do. It says on the Sabbath day, verse 13, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. And one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive pur purple cloth who was a believer in God. So they're, they're remember, what was in their vision? A, a man from Macedonia. They can't find one. They go to this prayer meeting. You know what they find? A woman named Lydia who's a businesswoman. And she's wealthy. And she's a believer, and she has influence, and she's a seller of this very exquisite uh, garments that are made from a purple dye that comes from her region, and she has, she has gained a clear sense of, of capacity as a businesswoman. Even in a culture such as that, she has exten ex really extensive influence. And look what the Bible says about what happens in that conversation. It says that she was there to worship God, and as they were talking, and sharing, I, lo I love this. It says, the Lord opened up her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying about Jesus. So they meet not a man from Macedonia, but a woman, and not just any woman, but a remarkable businesswoman, a Gentile believer named Lydia, who was a seller of purple. And she's not only wealthy, but she has a house that is large enough uh, to not only give them the opportunity to stay, and so they have a place, she invites them to stay, but they, she also has a house that becomes large enough to host the first church in Philippi. It becomes the gathering place of the first church in Philippi, her house. And look what it says here. One of them, Lydia, was, was, 
was from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And she listened to us. And I love it. The Lord opened up her heart. She accepted what Paul was saying. And then verse 15, she and her household were baptized. And she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer and I sincerely mean this, would you do me the honor? She says, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. And her example really is a reminder that wealth can be beneficial in life-giving if it's put into play for the kingdom. I will say this, if it's not, in the end, it's left behind. I was having this conversation with someone recently. I was talking about someone who had died, who was well-known and had exorbitant wealth. And I could not help but think about what Jesus taught. That power is fleeting and wealth must be left behind. Money cannot be taken with us. And if it's only done even for good things, which is better than bad things, that have no connection to the things of God, Jesus said, they have no eternal significance or meaning. He said, lay it for yourselves, treasure in heaven, not on this earth. I look at Lydia and I see a woman who's investing herself. I looked at that phrase and stay with me on it. The Lord opened up her heart. And loved ones, the last thing I'll submit to all of us, and I was looking in my own heart on it, said, may the Lord, you want to talk about a key for sustainment? May the Lord open up our hearts to his words, his promptings, and his plan for us, right? May our guarded walls crumble at his feet. And may we give him all who we are. Just thinking about it. The good, the not so good. May we give him also. When our, listen, you know what happens? When, your heart, when our heart opens up to the Lord, it's, it's like, Lord, what would you have for my life? I want to give it to you, for you. I want to live for you. It made me, as I was processing this, thinking about what happens when we open up our heart to the Lord. And I said, Lord, I don't want my heart only to be open to you on the day that I accepted you as my Savior. I want my heart to be open to you all the days of my life. I want to live for you with all of my shortcomings. And yes, even my sins uh, I want to give you my best. And so I was thinking of Lydia and how she opened up her heart to Jesus. And I just said, I'm going to write a poem or, as a prayer. And I put it in there for you. This is an honest word for me. And I just share it with you. All of me, I called it all of me, contradictions and rejections. Have you ever felt rejections? Painful parts, sin's reflection. Times of sorrow and watery eyes, some things live while others die. Know me now, love me now, so I can be who you made me to be. Born alive, I now believe. Born alive, I now receive. Given life, I give it back. All I have, I return. More of you, less of me. Once was blind, now I see. Once was bound, but now set free. All of me, my hopeful yearnings and inspiration, devotions call. And in the end, heaven's ovation. All of me. Let's pray together, you guys. So, Lord, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to be able to talk about your words together and to share them. Pray that some things will hook into our hearts and come alive. Um, perhaps some of us are at a point where we need to buy the ticket. We do. We need to act on the good intention, not just think about it. Act on the good intention. Oftentimes, the time is now the time to engage in a community, the time to give, the time to 
honor you with a life well lived, um, tomorrow not promised. Life is very short. All things will be left behind, but that which is eternal, what you taught us is how we live now has an impact on what is yet to be. Keep our hearts soft and open, all of me. Help us to sing that song as well, imperfectly, but honestly. We ask for your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen, God. Amen.